had a birthday recently, and I'm not elder yet. Just that's the good news. So if you have any ideas, I'm not elder yet. My dad lived to be 90. In about the last 10 years, he would have been elder. So I've got a long way to go. Hallelujah. It's great to be in the house of God today. And it is, it is wonderful. The lows have already skipped out. But I would just like to say, he, he talked about his wife and daughter praise singing behind him. And I would just like to say, even in their absence, that there are some praise leaders that their family would not want to sing behind them because they don't live what they portray from a pulpit. And I'm not saying that's, that's a big, huge group of people doing that, but I'm thankful that, that Brother Lowe lives what he presents from this pulpit. And if anyone knows that, it's the young people of this church who spend so much time with him, and they see consistency in him, and people don't mind following someone who lives a life of consistency. And y'all can tell Brother Lowe that I said that. He asked me before, back in the back, he said, is there any of these big glowing things you want me to say about you when I introduce you? I says, no, just keep it low key. But I want to say some glowing things about him. So you can tell him that I said that. And I appreciate him and them. Amen. And I appreciate all of you. This is a Wednesday night. You could have stayed home and enjoyed home. You could have not braved this winter weather. <laughs> Sunday night, we thought it was coming and it didn't come. Hallelujah. It's not coming tonight. That's great. It's good just to come to the house of God. I realize today is the 10th of January, and the, the month has already been kind of swirling by, and, and this is really my first chance to greet this congregation after the first of the new year. And so even though we're on the 10th of the month, I would like to go back as if it's the first of the year, and I would like to... to kind of get us in gear for the year a little bit. I love springtime, folks. When the new year hits, I'm already gearing up for gardening. Uh, in, in the old days, when magazines were mailed to your house, I got all of these seed catalogs early on. They had diagrams for your garden and, and what you could plant on this row and that row and, and all these beautiful plants, that pictures of them in, in full bloom and what they were really going to look like if you do a good job, you know, and, and all the fruit and the harvest you're going to get from your garden. And, and, and I, still, I still get some of those in the mail, but most of them I get online. Today, I got three of them online. I love them. I love them. I haven't looked through them yet. But I will. Uh, I love those because it kind of gets me in the, the spring mood. And I would like to, to teach tonight from a passage of Scripture. Passage of Scripture is often thought of as very negative, but I would like to flip it to the positive side tonight by His help. But here's a verse of Scripture, and it's Galatians chapter 6, verse seven, verses 7, 8, and 9. Familiar passage of Scripture, but maybe... I will use it in a little different setting. And the scripture, it says, it, it hits kind of hard. It says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Doesn't that sound negative, frightening, fearful? For he that soweth to his, of his, to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. 
then it flips it to the negative, uh, to the positive side. It says, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now this is a passage of Scripture about sowing and reaping. And when I got those, those seed catalogs in the mail today, Parks Brothers and Wayside Gardens and all the rest of them, when I got those seeds, I, thought, I said, oh, that's just, that's just a carnal confirmation that this Scripture is a good one to open with tonight. You know, it's, a, it's the first of the year. And I would like to plant a seed in your mind. Hopefully it will bear fruit in your life. And that is, sow good seed now so you can reap a good harvest later. No better time than when at the start of a year when you're turning over new leaves, when you're making New, year res new Year's resolutions, when you're trying to adapt adapt new habits. This is a good time to sow some good seeds in anticipation of a good harvest. Because as you sow, you are going to reap. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. How many of you didn't make them because you knew you hadn't kept them for the last ten years? Wasn't no use trying it now. Would you raise your hand? One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, yeah. Some of you raise your hand twice. You know you're going to make them this year, but you're not going to keep them. How many of you have ever said, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through this year? How many of you ever said that? How many of you got hung up in numbers? As far as you ever got. I see it, Jared. That is so easy to do. Brother Steve has pushed on through some of those kind of repetitious sections several times. I admire that. Yeah, there's sometimes we make New Year's resolutions. If I ever wanted to get into business, it would be in the gym business, fitness business. I would get in it, and I'd try to stay in it all year because I bring all my money in in the first month. People buy that year's subscription. And from about March on, I'm just coasting, sitting in that office drinking coffee. Nothing to do because nobody comes. Anybody ever done that? How many of you bought a year's, I'll start to say prescription, a year, a year's subscription? How many of you bought a year's worth of, of any fitness place and three months about all you did? Yeah, honest people not raising your hand, I understand. Oh, it happens to the best of us. Happens to the best of us. But this is a brand new time of the year. It's a new start. Second week of the year, second Wednesday of the year. This is a great time. We still have time to, to start over. The, the year hasn't gone too far. We can't start over. It's, we, we can still pick up our pace a little bit. We can, we can try a little harder. It's not too late for that. We're in a, a season of, of sowing. Even though the winter is still on us. <laughs> you ever had any, anything that kind of brought sadness to you? When, you, when you're just not thinking you know, winter is still here, folks. Don't set your house plants outside on the patio yet. In my basement right now, I have a, a Myers lemon tree. It stays outside on the patio all through the good part of the year, but this bad part of the year, I bring it inside, put it under lights in the basement. I walk down there near the, near the plant. It is covered with blossoms right now. Smells heavenly. It has Meyer oranges on it. 
almost as big as a dime right now if in amongst all of the blooms that are still coming on. I love it. I hope it'll survive and hold on to the fruit and the blooms till I set it out later. But if I set it out right now, it would be a dismal failure. Talk about crop failure. Blooms dying, falling off, stacking up on the ground. You have to use a little wisdom, things like that. But we're in a sowing season. My scripture, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man soweth or woman soweth, that shall he also reap. And I would like to, to try to get this point across to you by telling you a biblical story. In other, another setting, I've told this particular story and set, scriptural story, told it before, but I choose to tell tonight because it shows, it illustrates this particular passage of Scripture from Galatians so well. And it's the story of a miracle that happened in the book of Daniel. Daniel, the fifth chapter. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to, or your phones or whatever you have that has a Bible on it. I guess it's a Bible, whether it's digital or leather and paper, or it's still a Bible. Daniel chapter 5, though, has some interesting lessons from a particular story. Now, when you read Daniel chapter 5, you're going to read, and, and I'm drawing uh, quotes around, you're going to read this much stuff. What I'm going to tell you tonight is this much stuff. Not that I'm adding to or taking away from Scripture, but I'd like to go to, to a couple of historians as well as some archaeological findings that happened around 1924 uh, in Babylon. I'd like to go to, to those two or three sources to, to help us better understand the book of Daniel, chapter 5. And so in doing that, I'm going from Herod, Herodotus, Herodotus, who was a, a historian in the 5th century, going to uh, some of the German archaeologists of 1924 time who discovered some things to add to. And let me just put a couple of things up at, at the front. First of all, for many years, up until 1924, there was strong doubt among a lot of critical scholars of Scripture. There was a lot of, of concern in them that the man, the king by the name of Belshazzar of Daniel chapter 5, really never existed in history. Nabonidus, I believe that's his name, Nabonidus was in all actuality the final king of Babylon before it fell. And with Nabonidus being historically the final king, there was no room for Belshazzar to appear. He appeared in scripture, but they could not find him in history until 1924. But in 1924, thanks to some ex excavations, they found some additional history, secular history, secularly arch secular archaeological findings that validated what the scripture says. So I'm going outside Scripture only for the sake of validating what the Scripture does say. Another thing I want to say up front before I start the story is, at the time of Daniel chapter 5, as well as earlier, the heathen conception of, of a God was not the same as the Jewish conception or, or understanding of God. To the Jews, God was omnipotent. What does that mean? all-powerful. He was omnipresent. What does that mean? 
He was everywhere. And he was omniscient, which meant he is all-knowing. But to the heathens, the heathen did not think that their gods were omnipotent or omnipresent or, omni, or omniscient. They didn't realize or think about their gods being in that way. They thought that the spirit of their god was confined to their idol, made of gold, brass, silver, wood, whatever. Their, the spirit of that god was, was dwelling in that idol. And so when, when an army, of a, he, a heathen army, captured a certain territory, they would take the idols back to their land, back to their city, and when they brought those idols back to their city, they just assumed that they brought all those gods back to their city as well. And when they got all those gods in their cities, they thought that they had all the power of the gods of those other cities that they conquered, so they thought everything was well. You remember back in, in Eli's day when Eli was the high priest? Remember, they, they were going to, the Israelites were going to war against the Philistines, and they wanted to do it what they thought was right. It wasn't right, but they thought it was going to be right. So they took the Ark of the Covenant, which is this little golden box, not large, but a little golden box, and they took that along with them into the battle against the Philistines. Well, it didn't turn out well for them. They lost the battle, and then the Philistines had that ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that was, in a limited sense, it was the dwelling place of Jehovah God. That was the, not just symbolic, but there was some power in there. There were some miracle uh, testimonials in that box. Uh, that box was guarded. It was limited exposure to anyone, very much protected. But now it's out in the open, and the Philistines have it. And they think they have captured the idol. That was the only visible representation of God that the Israelites had. So the, the Philistines thought, we have captured their, their idol. Therefore, the spirit of that God dwells in that idol, so we've captured the God. They bring it back, and they put it in the temple of their God, whose name was Dagon. Dagon was on a little pedestal in his temple, and they went and they put the Ark of the Covenant in there with Dagon, their God. And the next morning, Dagon had fallen off of his pedestal, and he was laying on the ground. And so they picked him back up and put him on his pedestal. The next morning, he's back on the ground again. So they pick him up and put him back on his pedestal. This is just a word to anybody. If you ever have to pick your God up when he falls, he's probably not worth having. If he can't get back up on his own, just leave him there. Well, it ended up he broke. His head broke, his hands broke off. You know, he was in a mess. And they decided, with all of the sickness that God sent their way, they decided we don't want this, this idol here. The spirit of that God dwells in this, in this idol. We don't want that. So they sent it on an ox cart back home and and their diseases went away and, and the Ark of the Covenant was back in, in the right place and things went a little better. Now, I, I just wanted to tell you those two things. One is that thanks to the discovery, 1924, there's some additions or some explanations of, of Daniel chapter 5. And also, I want to tell you about the, the, the idols they thought, heathens thought, dwelt in, uh, the spirit of God, the gods dwelt in the idols. Now, so now let's get into Babylon. Let, let's talk about what has happened. In chapter 4, the close of chapter 4, 
Nebuchadnezzar is king. Nebuchadnezzar is king. God elevated him in position. And after God elevated him, he began to get prideful and lifted up in his heart, made these self-aggrandizing statements about himself. And so God humbled him. God lifted him up, and whenever he took the glory for himself, God plundered him. And so God sent him out. He was like a wild raven maniac, grew hair and feathers and claws and beaks and ate grass out in the pasture like an animal, and, and he was that way for several years. And, and finally, he kind of came to his senses, and he realized what he had done in his elevation and in his de-elevation, and he humbled himself in the eyes of God, and God elevated him again. He was humble at the end, but he was, God had still restored him. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. He did some great things. Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the king of all, or the, or the, the first over all of the wise men, the soothsayers and the, the Chaldeans, all of those wise people. King Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel over all of that group. Now, that's the end of chapter 4. Now we're into chapter 5. But there's something that happens between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar dies. When Nebuchadnezzar dies, his son becomes king. A few years into that son's kingship, his timing of rule, King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter and her husband, the husband primarily, decided he wanted to be king. So he had that son killed who was king. And then he became king along with his wife, who was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So now we have a new king, and I can never remember his name. Hang on, let me get you his name, because this is not the one that is in Scripture. Nabonidus. Nabonidus is king now, and his wife, who was the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. So they become king. He's the king, she's queen. He liked being king, but he didn't like to govern. No, there's some people like that. They like the title, but not the work. He loved the title, but he would prefer to be a historian and an archaeologist. He dug into all these old ruins, and he discovered artifacts, and he put them in museums. That's what he liked to do. So he turned the kingdom over to a co-regent whose name was Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the name that appears in chapter 5. So in chapter 5, Belshazzar is the co-regent, and the other co-regent, who is really the king, is Nabonidus. How did I say his name? Nabonidus. Nabonidus, he built him a, a king's palace and a compound in an Arabian oasis, and he stayed out there, and, and he did his thing, but he didn't have anything to do with the running of the nation. Belshazzar, who was in Babylon, he was the king running things. The co-regent was in a semi-retirement. After doing that for about 20 years, though, Cyrus the Great, who was the king of the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus the Great comes in. I know y'all didn't come for a history lesson tonight, but I am really going somewhere. Cyrus the Great and the Medes and Persians, they come in with armies against Babylon. Now, Babylon was a mighty empire. Daniel, in his dream in chapter 2, he describes it as the head and shoulders of gold in, in his vision. Now, there was parts later of silver and iron and brass and clay and bronze. and There was the other part of that image that Daniel portrayed, but the, the head and shoulders was of gold. 
And that was Belshazzar, or that was the Babylonian kingdom, which was going to fall apart when the silver came up. And so this was a great kingdom, but Cyrus the Great comes with an army against it. When the army came against the Babylonian empire, Nabonidus comes out of retirement, and he comes back into strong force as the king. He doesn't re-enter Babylon, though. Instead, he takes over the armies, the field armies, who are out there on the outside of the city of Babylon, and he's doing war against Cyrus the Great as Cyrus comes in. But at the, at the Battle of Osis, I believe it is, O-S-I-S, at the Battle of Osis, maybe O-T-I-S, my mind's fuzzy. At the, whatever the battle, King Nabonidus is soundly defeated. He fled. He, he, he flees because he's been so soundly defeated. So Cyrus the Great keeps marching toward Babylon. The closer he gets to Babylon, the more the reports are coming to the fortified city of Babylon, what he's doing. There was a city that was, was between Cyrus and Babylon. And in that city, a large city, protected city as well, when they saw what Cyrus had done to, to Nabonidus and his armies, then it, it put fear in their heart, and they just gave up without a fight. They didn't even bar the door. You've heard of Katie bar the door? Well, Katie didn't bar the door. They just let the armies take over. They just surrendered without a fight. Now, word of that came back to Babylon. So now we have a king who's really a co-regent, but Belshazzar is inside the city of Babylon to defend that final capital city against the onslaught of the Medes and Persians as championed by Cyrus the Great. City of Babylon, 17 miles of wall all the way around it. Its average width of the wall was 77 feet thick. It had watchtowers ever so often around the walls. The watchtowers were over 180 feet tall. This is what excavators have discovered. City of Babylon. Huge city. Double-walled, double-moated. Bronze gates, carefully prepared. Large enough that they had fields and orchards growing inside. They had food enough for years, according to Herodotus of the 5th century. I'm holding up four fingers. The 5th century. It was an amazing, amazing abilities within that city. The city, for all expectations, was not, you, you could not get into it. It was impregnable. There was no way that, that an enemy could get inside that city. There was no weapons of war, no battering rams, no catapults that could take this city or breach the gates or go over the walls. They couldn't do it. And so inside that city is a king. This king, Belshazzar, remembers some stuff and some things maybe the Jews remembered and maybe he didn't remember. 150 years before this, Isaiah had prophesied that the, 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 the empire of Babylon would crumble and fall at the hands of Cyrus. Isaiah named it by name, him by name, 150 years before. I believe it was Jeremiah who put a time frame on it. They said, it, he said, it will happen, the fall of, of Babylon will happen when the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar is ruling, who was Belshazzar, the son of the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. 
this, whether this Belshazzar king, whether he knew about all of those Jewish historians, prophets, who had prophesied about the fall of Babylon, whether he knew that or not, we don't really know. But in his lifetime, in the kingdom of Babylon where he served, there was a man by Daniel in chapter 2 who said the things that Daniel said, the, the image of the, of the various metals. In chapter 7, Daniel prophesied of the fall of Babylon. One other time in the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesied of the fall of Babylon. In all likelihood, Belshazzar knew of these. And so now Belshazzar is in his palace. The army of Cyrus the Great is getting closer and closer. The gates are barred. We're impregnable. We're safe. Unless we become fearful from within. If we become fearful from within, like the city that just gave up, it's a city that's not far from here. If we, would, if we become fearful of Cyrus like they did and we give up, then Cyrus can take us. So I've got to bolster the morale of my city, of my people, of my lords. And rather than having such a huge desire to party, it was probably a military strategic decision that in order for me to not be taken from within, I've got to bolster all of the morale of my people and let them know that I, the king, am not afraid of Cyrus the Great. We are impregnable, impenetrable. And so he decides to throw a party. He invites his lords, his wives, his concubines. He invites them all to this huge party in the, the grand room of his, of his Babylonian capital palace. So he has them all there. He's invited them all there. Now, before Nabonidus was defeated, one of his final acts, he was not killed in that battle, just defeated, but one of his final acts before that battle he sent word to all of the cities round about Babylon. It was in the Babylonian Empire, but it was still cities. He got all of them to send their idols to Babylon because he wanted the gods of those idols to be on his side. If I can get all of the gods of this surrounding area into the city of Babylon, gathered with all of my gods, then together we can able to be, to be able to win this particular fight. And so he had all of his idols sent there, the city's idols. All the idols are there. Are there. And then when the feast time started, one of the deals they did was they, they, they gave a toast to all of their gods. And at the time when Belshazzar decided he was going to give a toast to all those gods, this brilliant yet ignorant decision or choice flashed through his mind, and he decided what he would do. I know where there's over 5,400 vessels that, that our armies brought back to us from the temple in Jerusalem of that God called Jehovah. I want to bring all of those vessels into this party room and I'm going to drink I'm going to make my toasts out of the vessels the, the goblets from the temple of Jehovah it seems like Jehovah is against me and he's for Cyrus if I knew the prophecies which we don't know if he did but if he knew those prophecies he said if I can toast with Jehovah's cups 
show a mockery to Jehovah, show that I scorn the power of Jehovah who has made these prophecies against Babylon and in the presence of my lords and let the people watch and know that we do not fear Jehovah, we do not fear Cyrus. And so in the atmosphere of that partying spirit, you know, it's easy to do things when you get caught up in a partying spirit. It doesn't take alcohol to to get you caught up in a partying spirit and you do things you would never do in a sane moment. That's just a little extra. Now, So he's having his party. All of his people are there. The room was very different. Some of the excav was different from what some concept is. The Bible talks about a plastered wall. All of you people who've worked in this building, you know what plastering is. Plaster, some the old plaster is not sheetrock. It's, it's different than that, but it's plaster. But there was lampstands on one side, and the plaster wall was, was opposite of, those, of the lights. So the lights were over here, and they actually shined on that wall. It was, it was a wall, a place of notice. And with the light, the white, there was a brightness there. And right in the middle of all of this partying and all of this nose-thumbing at Jehovah and Cyrus, part of a man's hand appears and starts writing on that wall. Never happened before. I don't guess it's ever happened since. But it wrote some words, Aramaic words, many, many tickle you farsen. And in writing the many, many tickle you farsen, the, the actions of that hand writing on the wall changed the countenance of King Belshazzar. Daniel's name was Belshazzar. This king's name was Belshazzar. It changed his countenance. He went from this haughty, gloating, thumb-scorning uh, man to a quaking coward. The Bible talks about him quaking and shaking. And then he cries with a loud voice for his wise men and his soothsayers and his Chaldeans. When it says he cried with a loud voice, don't think that that was with a loud voice of authority. All of my wise men come here now. No, it wasn't that at all. His knees were knocking. Read scripture. His knees were knocking. He was quaking. He was shaking. He was put into a fearful position when the hand of God appeared. Wise men came, the soothsayers, the Chaldeans. They came, but they could not say what it was. Now, they were wise men. Don't, don't sell them short. They were wise men. That, that was Aramaic words. In all likelihood, these people could read those three words that were written. Many, many, tickle, euphorson. They could read those words, but they didn't get the meaning of the whole. Many means measured. One of the definitions of many means to measure or to met out. Many, many, tekel. Tekel is a measurement of money, a shekel in weight. Euphorsen is, one of its meanings is 
to divide, its actual meaning is the weight of a half shekel or a division by two of a shekel. And so those wise men, perhaps, could read those Aramaic, were Aramaic words and they could understand weighed, measured, shekel, half shekel. They could read the words, but they didn't get the gist of it. The king said, I will give you a, a gold neck, a scarlet robe. You can be number three in the kingdom. Nabonidus is first, Mebelshazzar is second, and you can be third. And, but they couldn't do it, so they didn't get his reward. And after that went on for a bit, he was panicking. He was fearful. It was a bad time in his life. The queen comes into the banquet room. In all likelihood, it's not one of his wives. The Bible already has said that his wives and his concubines are already there. But now a queen comes in. Most probably, it is his own mother, who is the wife of the other co-regent, Nabonidus, and is also the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. She comes on the scene. And she goes over to her son, Belshazzar, who's a, who's a quivering mess of a man at that point. She, she knows her son. She knows how to comfort him. She knows how to, to approach him. And she, she may touch him, pat him. I don't know how she came to her son. But she says, there is a man in your kingdom who can give you the interpretation of this message. She knew if she said Daniel, it may trigger something in Belshazzar who would say, here I have been flagging my nose at, at the king, at Jehovah, and the message of Daniel, and I'm sure don't want to hear from him now. So she didn't use his name at the very first. She said, there is a man in the kingdom who can answer this. And then, in the course of the conversation, she calls him by the name of Daniel, which is his Hebrew name, three times. And then once or twice, she calls him by his, his Babylonian name, which is Belteshazzar. Read it in your King James. She finally tells him, your father, which it was just a way of speech, it was really his grandfather, but he, she was speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar appointed this man to be over all the wise men and the Chaldeans. So he can answer your question. He can interpret this writing. So Belshazzar finally consented and said, okay, bring him in. So they brought Daniel in. Daniel at this point is probably 75 years old. Chapter 6, he goes in the lion's den. It wasn't a little boy facing the lion. But in chapter 5, Belteshazzar, Daniel, probably 75 years old, too old to be over all of the wise men anymore, kind of past his prime, some would say. But God and Daniel had some things going, and of Daniel there was an excellent spirit. And so they brought Daniel in. The king Belshazzar, he didn't want to play the fool. He didn't want to play the dummy, the scared man. So he tried to be tough. And when Daniel came in, he said, Oh, are you the one that we captured back in Israel? You're one of the captives that we brought here. And he was putting Daniel down. He said, Are you the one that we, one of the ones that, that we educated? And if you mattered anything, it's because you had some Babylonian training. Or is that who you are? He said, Well, if you can write, answer what's written on the wall, then I will give you 
the necklace, the scarlet robe. I'll let you be third in the king right after Nabonidus and myself. You can be the third in the kingdom. Daniel says, I don't want your gifts. Forget all that. But I want to tell you, you didn't take a lesson from your grandfather. He was elevated and abased. Elevated again. He learned the, the true value of humility. You haven't learned that. And because of that, this is written. And what this says is you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Weighed in the balances and found wanting. And I want to read that passage to you from Scripture because I think it's so um, interesting. Verse 25, this is a writing that was written, Daniel said. Many, many tickle you, Farson. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, which was a version of the Euphorsen, Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians are the armies that were championed by Cyrus who was knocking on Babylon's door at that very moment. In my imagination, everything in the room grew quiet. Everybody was waiting to see how King Belshazzar would respond to this man rebuking him in front of all of his lords and wives and concubines. How, how will he take being rebuked in such a fashion? Will he have Daniel's head cut off right now, instantly? Or will he humble himself to the message and seek repentance, forgiveness, ask for forgiveness from Jehovah? Or Will he go outside the city and surrender to Cyrus and try to save his life? What will he do? But instead, the only Bible record we have of what he did was keep his promise. His promise was, I will give you a necklace and a scarlet robe and make you third in the kingdom. And that is what he did. He kept his promise. And in that same night, God kept his promise. And that night, the enemy came in, killed Belshazzar, captured the city. Herodotus, the, the historian from the 5th century, he says that, inex and, and he didn't write that word inexplicably because he didn't write English, but, but he said inexplicably the inner gates and the outer gates were left open. That's what Herodotus said. Inexplicably. Belshazzar kept his word. Jehovah kept his word. And I think that's what God always does. He keeps his word. And I would like to read one final scripture in closing. Because it's the same scripture I've read already. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. 
just to hear the story of Darius and Daniel, I mean uh, Belshazzar and Daniel, Darius was the king that comes on in chapter 6. Just because we, we hear the story of Belshazzar and Belteshazzar doesn't mean that we have to take Galatians as a negative lesson. Daniel's lesson was a negative yet a positive lesson. God is not mocked. Whatsoever we sow, that we're going to also reap. Belshazzar sowed evil things. He flaunted things. He mocked Jehovah. He mocked the things of God. He did not fear God. And he was going to reap what he sowed. But in our lives today, this is the start of the year. Whatsoever we sow, that we can reap. If we sow to the Spirit, we will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So what choice does that give us today? Well, from this passage, it gives us two choices. We can sow to the flesh or we can sow to the Spirit. Simple choice. How many want to sow to the flesh? No. After me reading that whole passage, no, you don't want to sow to the flesh. That's what Belshazzar did. But instead, we want to sow to the Spirit. So what can I do in 2018 to sow to the Spirit? Because if I sow to the Spirit, I'll leap, reap, I'll leap, I'll reap life everlasting. I want to sow to the Spirit. Being here on a Wednesday night, that's one way to sow to the Spirit. You're making some choices. Being here on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, that's sowing to the Spirit rather than sowing to the flesh. There's a lot of things. That's not saying don't take vacation, don't do anything fun. We're not saying that at all. In your flesh, you can have fun. As long as you're sowing to the Spirit, it can be appropriate. Sowing to the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit. And I'm glad that we can sow to the Spirit. One way I want to sow to the Spirit this year, I would like to be a Daniel. I know that's my name, but I would like to be a Daniel in this world. Other people could see the writing, but it meant nothing to them. There are people who, can, who have the writing, but it means nothing to them. The reason Daniel could read the writing and understand it and grasp it is because he had a relationship with the author, the one whose hand was writing it. And by having a relationship with the author of the writing, he was able to explain and tell the writing. What do I want to do? How do I want to sow to the Spirit in 2018? I want to somehow be the interpreter of this scripture to someone. I cannot tell of God's forgiveness when I don't forgive those who wrong me. I cannot tell of God's love when I don't love those who despitefully use me. I can't interpret things of God properly if my life is not doing it also. What do I want to do to sow to the Spirit this year? Somehow, I want to walk in the Spirit so I'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Another scripture that's valid. I want to sow to the Spirit.
I don't want to sow to the flesh. How can I do that? By walking in the Spirit. Amen. Shall we stand?